0: you're listening to world building for masochists
1: and we're wondering why we do this to ourselves
0: personally i'm doing it because i need to justify my google search history to the police and i am anna stevens
1: i'm marshall ryan mareska
2: i'm cass morris i'm rowena miller and this is episode 38 writing the dark side Welcome, Anna. We are so excited to have you here today. Um, I'm particularly excited to hear more about your world building and your writing on Stone Knife, which I... Um had the pleasure of reading and loved it and it's so fun. Thank Can you, you tell
0: us a little bit about
2: yourself? Introduce yourself, tell us about your books.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah, so I'm Anna Stevens. Um, I am the author of the Goblin trilogy, uh, which is Godblind, Dark Soul, and Blood Child. They have been mostly labelled as Grimdark, um, depending on what your own personal definition of Grimdark is, as to whether or not I qualify for that. Um, I have achieved a very small level of notoriety because of a particular scene in my debut novel um, involving uh, blunt force trauma to the genitals um, which I wrote with a huge amount of glee um, and apparent. apparently the glee shines through because I, I do regularly get uh uh male readers getting in touch just basically screaming why at me um and and the answer is why the hell not really um and yeah my forthcoming series is called the songs of the drowned uh book one is the stone knife uh which is published on the 26th of november and uh it's probably a little bit more epic than it is grimdark um, but it does, it doesn't have genital mutilation. So, you know, if, if, if you're here for the mutilation, I'm going to have to disappoint you this time. Um, but it does have a smidge of cannibalism instead. Just a smidge. Just a smidge. Just, 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 just a soup song. That's
3: a fair trade-off. Yeah, yeah. Just,
0: just a, a, little, a snacket <laughs> of another person, shall we say. And an, an amuse. An moose. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. <laughs>
1: You know, I can't help but think that the guys who are writing those emails are the exact same ones where any other horror or mistreatment done on other people would be like, that's just history. That's just It's real- so authentic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. so authentic. I think,
0: I, I think uh, the, the problem... I think the problem was that um, it was a female writer writing it and it was the, the actual... Incident was a was was dealt by a female character to a male character, um, and and I think the issue was, um, if it was just your typical, if you swap if you swap the genders over and it's just if it was just like your typical sex assault or rape scene, it wouldn't be a, a big deal to anybody. But I was like, well, no. I mean, I had to grow up watching some fairly horrific films in the eighties that had you know all sorts of nastiness done to ladies. Um, So I'm I'm just gonna take all of that rage and and I'm just gonna shove it straight back at you.
3: <laughs> shove it back where the sun don't shine. Mm, it sounds yes. like.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. So yeah, that's that's a hell of an introduction. I mean, no one is gonna carry on listening to this now, are they? No. That's
2: it. And I'm
3: not sure you know our yes, our listeners I think our really. listeners are
1: are. Um, <laughs>
2: gleeful to hear about it as as you were to write it so it's a perfect perfect fit
1: we're talking about darkness today so it's all good
2: it fits we
1: primed them
2: it makes sense so um when we when we started talking about what to do this episode on i asked anna what she wanted to to dig into and immediately we started talking writing good villains and how how does one do that how does one write baddies that aren't 2d tropes um and i think that that is a topic that's so intimately tied to world building um in so many ways because character development we've talked about on this podcast a lot is developed you know in tandem with world building in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. so when we're thinking about stories um books that have an antagonist which is most of them um what makes it different when we set it in a second world
0: um i think when it's in a second world um because you have written the rules of that world you then get to write what is classed as good and evil um so you know i mean in a if if it was i don't know for instance like a um a science fiction novel so uh what what sci-fi have i read recently so say it's like uh rosewater by Tade thompson um, and which it's like the, the alien biodome and the, the sort of potentially parasitic uh, symbiosis between the alien and uh, the people of Lagos. And, you know, the, the, the alien has done a lot of good for the world, but it's also, um, it also transforms people physically and mentally, you know, so is it good? Or is it evil? It's it's very you know for some people it's one and for some people it's the other. Um, so I like that idea where if you are, if you're writing the rules, then you you kind of get to decide what constitutes as bad and what constitutes as good. Um, whereas obviously. Um, unless you are, you know, a sociopath in this world, you you're pretty sure what constitutes good and evil, and it and it just depends on on how far your own sort of moral compass is is willing to to rotate to convince yourself that what you're doing is either good or evil. So yeah, I I think it's that it's that ability to uh, to set your own moral compass basically, um, and then have your your characters either adhere to that or you know just set the compass on fire and go no i'm, I'm gonna do whatever the hell i want to do
1: <laughs> i think also on a world building level you can set what the moral compass of the whole world mm-hmm. is and the culture you're writing and then how your protagonists and antagonists fit within that framework An easy one to to poke at is obviously the, uh, the Harry Potter books where for a period of time, the quote unquote, like the ministry, the law is like, hey, we're just doing, you know, if you're following what, you know, the legal forces in the world are doing, you're probably the bad guy because, because the Death Eaters have taken over the Ministry of Magic. So, but that's quote unquote, the right thing within the world is to, you know, turn in people who are who are against who are against the dark lord and such like that so you can you can definitely play with what's what's right and wrong just in how you first off just frame what the where the society is and where their point
0: yeah is. yeah for sure definitely um and i think with um with uh the stone knife in particular um because i've got uh i've got a form of magic that is uh that is based in song um, and the song extends across the whole of the empire um, and it sort of subtly controls the people who hear it so the people who live under the song are sort of constantly um, they're constantly exposed to it and they can't not hear it um, it's just always there uh, so obviously if uh, if you send a message through the song for instance, such as this particular type of, you know, the, the, these particular people are better than these particular people, then uh, subtly over time everyone who hears it will begin to mm-hmm. believe that. So the, so the, the people A um, begin to believe that they're superior and people B begin to believe that their only job is to serve people A. Um, so that was like really interesting to play with because it was, it was almost like this kind of idea of, say for example, like white supremacy or something like that. You know, it it was, um, we don't really notice it on a conscious level. Uh, we just, we, you know, in, in the songs of the drowned world, I'm not talking about us right now, but in the songs of the drowned world, um, they just know that they're better. And it's not even something that they even need to stop and think about and say, well, well, what makes us better? They just know they are, because they are uh, the song tells them that they are. And so that was quite interesting to play with, because then you've got people who are coming in and joining the empire, whether willingly or unwillingly, who are then suddenly faced with this idea. And it was really, it was sort of fun, but also, sort of tragic to write the characters as they slowly begin to slide from this is absolute rubbish complete bullshit I'm as good as you into these people are so much better than me um and it it was kind of it was sort of compelling to explore but it was also kind of heartbreaking at the same time because I, I was kind of like typing away and going no no Break free, my little characters. <laughs> um, because despite despite all of the things I do to my characters, I do just want them all to have a happy ending. <laughs> um, but it's only book one. I mean, no one gets a happy ending in book one. So we're, we're going to, you know, the jury's out on what happens in the sequels. But, um, but yeah, it, it was kind of interesting to force myself to write people basically like, having emotional and mental degeneration in as much as how they view themselves and how they view their status in society and stuff like that
2: but i love that too that it's you know evil does not have to necessarily be presented as something that is overwhelming and obvious and kind Mm. of like you know everyone looks at it's like yes that is the bad thing and i see it as though it is a monolith right there it's it can be a subtle undertone that's you know kind of written through society in these ways um and i love the metaphor of a song for kind of making you think about the things you're hearing all the time and internalizing and yeah exactly you know even though you know maybe we aren't drawing a a firm you know Analogy to anything in our world, I think that we could probably all come up with examples of things in our real world that are similar to that. That there's an undertone somewhere, or something that's just internalized, yeah. and it yeah. has to be. You know, if you're going to fight that particular evil, it has to be confronted in the self as well as in the external.
0: Yeah, precisely, precisely. And I think because I because I wanted to make um, colonialism and empire part of the thing that I was looking at I was I was trying to come up with you know how did we get to this kind of insidious belief that we had the right to go and do all of the things that we have historically done throughout history um and it was just this you know it was just this the conclusion I came to was that people just genuinely believed that they were better than other people Um, And yeah, you're exactly right. It's it's just this sort of all pervasive, never quite articulated, but just constantly there in the background, this sort of belief and this slow reinforcement of um, this is this is the way to quote the Mandalorian. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That um, that, yeah, so I so I thought that, you know, something that you can never stop hearing in the in the form of this sort of endless music. Um, would would be a good analogy for uh, for that idea of, of how you justify doing terrible things um, and you justify them as actually I'm doing something good and it's, it's all for their benefit
3: I think that speaks too, to to a, a potential that second world gives us to magnify and literalize things that are sort of subcurrents in society things that are either systemic or subconscious if you think about like the evils of violating consent Mm. right that's a nuanced thing in reality and it happens on a lot of different levels of verbal and nonverbal communication sometimes but if you have magic that can just literally take someone's will away that magnifies the issue of what I'm doing is violating this person's right to themselves through magic it makes explicit what is perhaps a more a complicated conversation in our lived reality?
0: Yeah, definitely. And, it, and it's a really great way to bring up topics that are, um, that are visible in our world, but possibly aren't discussed often enough. Um, and, and to just sort of educate people about them, but in, a, in like a totally different way. I mean, the other way that you could look at the song is that it's just mass gaslighting. You know, you're, you're not only gaslighting the people who are already in a privileged position to believe that they deserve to be in a privileged position. So you're just reinforcing that idea that they are better, even though there is no empirical data to suggest that they're any better. But then you're also gaslighting everyone else by telling them that they are inferior. Um, so, yeah, so there's there's an awful lot of, now that you've, phrased it in those terms there is an awful lot of um consent issues and and violation of consent going on with this idea of of the song
2: one thing that i love too about um the way that you've set up the world is that you can really ask the question too of in a second world you can have both antagonist people and antagonist systems Mm. and you know how we can play with that as writers. Um, I know that for me in in my book um, it was important <laughs> to me that I was writing really the, the, that the end the true antagonist was the system itself. It wasn't yeah. one bad person that you get out of there and oh all of a sudden everything is fine. Um, but it was the system itself was was standing in the way of what people wanted out of their lives. So how do we like how do we go about building an antagonist system? versus antagonist people when we're playing with fantasy.
0: I think the thing is, if you've got, if you write a villain who is just completely isolated, it's just one bad person in a fairly recognizable, fairly ordinary world, you're never going to, uh, you're never really gonna believe them, you're never gonna take them seriously because it's just one dude shoot him in the head, you know? <laughs> end up. Your your entire bad guy antagonist plotline goes away. If you've got characters who are actually decent human beings who don't recognise that they are in a privileged or evil society and doing privileged and evil things, I think that makes things a whole lot more complex. Um, so I think you need to look at, you know, if, if you want to have like an evil regime rather than just an evil character i think you need to look at what are um, what are universal evils you know what does that come down to um and there's uh it always it always reminds me of um i can't remember which Discworld book it is but granny weatherwax the witch um
3: i was about i was holding on to the (laughs) quote i think i know exactly it's in witches abroad i think think if we're thinking about the same
0: thing there's Yeah. yeah granny weatherwax she says um sin is when you start thinking about people as things that's that is the root of all evil that's where it starts from is people as things rather than people as people um and i think that is that's very much one of the driving themes um, in the stone knife is that the Empire of Songs believes that everyone who isn't patake which is their their people if you're not patake then you're a thing so I think yeah I think finding those big universal evils is is probably key to uh, key to setting up an entire world system that is... Uh, that is evil, and, and that the system as an antagonist itself, and then you get to put people in it um, who have maybe varying levels of involvement in that system, which makes for all sorts of interesting things. I think.
1: Yeah, you. I mean, on some level, you want to have your evil system, but at the same time, like I'm now flashing to the bit. I, I don't know what British show it was, but it's like the two guys in the Nazi uniforms <laughs> with the skulls on their the on their collars. <laughs> Are we the baddies here? <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a comedy show. Yeah.
1: But I mean, you, you want you want to make it that you can at least believe that the you know, the average guy who is going in and working his shift like building the death machine is (laughs) (laughs) at least thinks he's doing the right thing one way or another or at least doesn't think like well i'm i'm gentleman to evil (laughs) exactly yeah yeah you know if you're
0: walking around in a cape and drinking out of the skulls of your enemies you're probably it's probably a pretty safe bet that you're you're a bad guy but yeah like you said if, if you're the guy who just washes up the skulls of his enemies then you're just trying to make a living
3: you know? i need the job benefits. yeah know? i
0: need the health care cover guys. my
3: insurance <laughs> <laughs>
0: so yeah so it's, that's that's something that i'm kind of really fascinated by is how how um is everyone who is involved in that system are they inherently evil or is it just that 99.9% of them are just trying to survive the same as everyone else? Um, and it is literally just down to that 0.1% who know exactly what they're doing and are ensuring that the status quo remains the status quo because it gives them the greatest amount of power.
2: I mean, inertia so, is, is often far easier than trying to act against an entire system and if you think about you know a lot of the fantasy societies that we create people don't necessarily have all the leisure time in the world to be like well i'm fed i'm clothed i have shelter what could i do with the rest of my day i'll overthrow the system (laughs) like they're spending most of their you know energy on just making it day to day and i think that you can you know you can play with that to some degree of when people make choices within an evil or unjust system that make their lives easier, to what degree are they becoming complicit in that system? To what degree is it survival? To what degree do they get lumped in with the baddies versus the just kind of like mass of people living here? And I think that you can, like Hass was saying earlier, those choices can be, clarified and magnified in fantasy in ways that it's very difficult in to see in our own world to strip away all of those yeah. extraneous details to get down to that
0: yeah yeah definitely and I, th- I think um, you know a, a really a really really good novel um, of whatever you know whatever genre whoever the author is you know if it if it finds a way to teach the reader something without necessarily ramming it down their throats, although that does have its place at times, you know, you just need it laid out in black and white. This is bad, this is good. Um, But I think if you've got a story that does make people examine maybe something about themselves, um, then, you know, that's almost like one of the main purposes of... Of art as far as I'm concerned Um, I mean for example you know if you've got a a character who has been coded as a villain um, who then as you said works to change the regime from the inside they start off as a villain um, do they end up as a hero or is it simply a case of or you're just trying to solve your own conscience you know Um, and does that distinction matter if they get if they get the right results. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I like examining things like someone who starts out as a hero um, and then gets sucked into the regime and begins to take advantage of it. At what point do they tip over from I'm just trying to survive to do they become a villain in their own right? Um, and how do you handle that as a writer? Because you've basically, you know, you might have spent two books engendering all of this sympathy in your readers. And then you're like, oh, no, sorry. He bad now. (laughs) And then it's like, oh, shit. (laughs) You know, what is going to happen? What, you know, how are readers going to react to that?
1: That reminds me that I need to get caught up on Seth Dickinson's series of the, that starts with the Trader Mm -hmm. Brew Cormorant, And I haven't read the next books, Mm. but Trader Brew, I mean, the main character, she basically ingratiates herself in this evil empire that's colonizing everything to get into a position of power to tear it down from the inside. Yeah, And does horrible things to raise her position so that she's in a position to do that. Yeah, And I haven't read books two and three, and there's a fourth one also, but like the titles of two and three are the monster brew cormorant and the tyrant brew yeah. cormorant so things probably don't go well just based on <laughs>
3: degree that. of escalation implied there
0: yeah absolutely absolutely i mean i um i think you know when um when the film milan came out the live action not long ago and there, there was there was quite a twitter furore about it and and the errors that it might have made with chinese history and all that kind of stuff Um, but somebody linked to, um, a list, like a blog post of, you know, maybe you could have made a film about one of these other 10 historical Chinese Mm -hmm. women. Um, and I can't remember the name of this woman, but she basically, uh, she, she was, she was either a high ranking princess or she was even empress or something. Um, and her dynasty was overthrown and she was basically taken and forced into marriage with the new emperor. Um, No, she wasn't forced into marriage, sorry. She seduced this guy, ended up marrying him, had something like four of his kids, supported him through 30 years of rule, while secretly assembling an army that absolutely nobody knew about and then she overthrew her husband of 30 years who she'd had like four kids with and stabbed him to death um and i was like this woman should have been queen of the whole world she's amazing <laughs> you know but but she obviously had to become completely complicit with her um with her husband's regime and probably with the persecution of everyone who had been loyal to the previous dynasty um but she did it in order to to end that end that rule you know so it's very it is very morally gray and you know is she a hero is she a villain i think depending on whether you were which side of that particular conflict you were on is is gonna significantly impact how you feel about what she did
1: and which day you were asked a week before she overthrew him, probably were like, "Oh no, this woman is just as bad as everybody else." And then after she overthrows, I'm like, "Oh, maybe I'll have to rethink that." <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I mean, but that's, but that framing is so like the difference between your 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 horrible terrorists and your plucky rebels is just framing and. <laughs>
0: absolutely, <yeah>. absolutely. <laughs> and, it's the whole history is written by the victors, isn't it? Yeah, you know? and I think
2: that's a spot too where we can drag our um kind of our education and experience and the norms of our culture kind of into a second world. Like one thing that I've mm. noticed a lot is that and maybe this Americans especially, but people love the rebels. They always love the rebels no matter what they're doing. And it's kind of like <laughs> if you ever look at actual world history, like this doesn't always go well. Like yeah. the vast majority of time a revolution just means replacing one horrible dictatorship with another. Like it's not always a a good outcome. They are not always, you know, operating on good motivations. But I think and you know, I, I can only speak from the perspective as an American that I think that we just default to well the the rebels are the good guys. Of course overthrowing the big whatever it is is good and it's kind of like well we could probably stand to examine that a little bit but at the same time as writers we have to be aware of those biases in creating our second world and in creating our bad guys good guys dynamic because there are assumptions that we're either going to have to roll with or very deliberately dismantle within our writing um yeah or or risk much confusion and gnashing of teeth on the part of our readers. <laughs> well,
3: it's like the French Revolution started out with you know noble aims and, and things like that, but it did not take long to devolve into different factions of revolutionaries murdering each other, and then it ends with Napoleon. Yeah, it's like, it didn't like, even yeah. stick. The trajectory.
2: I think it's to decapitate the... all these people, but it didn't even stick.
3: Didn't even work. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's... Weird how all that murder didn't get us the result we wanted. We don't want a
0: monarchy. Let's have an empire. Uh, sorry? How does that work? Is that Ooh, better? Wait,
2: wait hold... I don't think. Hold on. And then rinse, repeat, like, seven times.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's something I liked about the, the new Star Wars trilogy is it sort of addressed that, that it didn't fix everything. Mm. And evil did still lurk and it regrew and it wasn't dealt with swiftly enough and it came back and uh oh we now we have to fight the same fight all over again yeah it's exhausting yeah
0: i mean i don't Um, whether whether in a a secondary world or this world it doesn't it it seems like a cycle that is almost impossible to break because at the end of the day it comes down to people wanting power and until you mm -hmm. can evolve the entire human race out of the lust for power, it is probably just going to keep on happening. What Humans is, my gonna God, human. that's a depressing... That's a depressing thought, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> but, but yet,
2: we, we also stupidly keep fighting. So, you know, we got both sides of the coin, I guess. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true.
1: Like, you can imagine in the Star Wars universe in the 40 years in between, there was people who were like, I mean... Remember the Empire when at least ships ran on time and we all had healthcare? And, you know.
3: Yeah, that's that's
1: Claudia Ray's Leia
3: book, Bloodlines, is exactly that happening? And Leia being like, "I think they're starting another fascism over there. Should we maybe check in on that?" And everyone's like, "Nah." <laughs> they weren't that bad, and, and it is it's, it addresses the problem of like integrating people who who did work in the evil Empire mm-hmm. into our new government. How do we? do we welcome them back how do we integrate them into society if they if they were just the guys doing a job and how do you tell if they were just the guys doing a job and at what point is just following orders not an excuse yeah. it's a lot of complicated wrestling to do
0: yeah Definitely. And I would not like to be the person in charge of making those decisions.
2: I mean, I think there's a reason
0: that often stories
2: end before you get to that point. That was my favorite part <laughs> of writing book three of The Unraveled Kingdom was like getting to do a little bit of that. And I was like, I had to like hold myself back because I'm like, most people don't want to read this. Most people aren't crazy like <laughs> like me and my podcast buddies. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think there is more a hunger for that now, than perhaps in previous decades though mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to challenging entire systems mm-hmm. like a monarchy I, I think readers are wanting more of that wrangling perhaps and and then the the challenge for us as writers becomes still making that an interesting story still yeah. making that dynamic and dramatic which i think that's where, where you sort of get the flip problem of you know if, if we want to complex dynamic system to take down rather than just sauron (laughs) how do we still personalize it you know who represents who who is the biggest dickhead of them all that represents all that we hate in the society that we can sort of focus our energy onto and feel satisfied when at least that 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 jerk is taken down
1: yeah that was when i was writing velocity of revolution that was like the hardest part to figure out for me of like who is my antagonist here because like i i had in an initial outline like a character who sort of represented like the personification of that but then when i made some shifts from my outline like that character was gone then i was like (laughs) well who is it (laughs) (laughs) Who's?" i was like damn it is just the system isn't it oh that which then helped me figure out the ending a lot better than what I originally had. But it, it was definitely this question of, like, you know, it cannot... Even if you have a character who represents that, it cannot be as simple as, well, we beat that guy, so therefore everything's going to be yeah. fine now. Like, <laughs> yeah. No, no, but, like, I think that was the, the nice, simplistic way to do epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But now I think people less want... They less want the the rebellion against the Dark Lord and they want the Continental Congress after the Dark Lord is (laughs) (laughs)
3: And I think there's still, I mean, like there is still a place and a value in in the less complex stories. I still love Lord of the Rings and I weep like a child when good conquers evil. There's something satisfying in that. But we require different kinds of satisfaction. You don't want to eat the same meal every day. And I'm really glad that speculative fiction is branching outside of that narrative more and more.
2: So here's a question. If you are going to write a story where the focal point antagonist is not a system, but is in fact a person or maybe even a group of people, but it's it's focused, how can we do that while maintaining good integration with world building and also not writing cardboard cutouts? Like not Snidely Whiplash,
0: Um, I think for me, for me personally, uh, and this is part of my actual writing style, is that I write multiple points of view. Um, So I make sure that there is always a point of view on the side of the bad guys. Uh, uh, And preferably there's roughly equal numbers. So the stone knife has got It's got seven points of view, uh, but I can only talk about six because one of them is a massive spoiler. Um, (laughs) So basically what I will say is that there are three good guys, three coded good and three coded bad guys. Um, And in that, you know, for that particular... um, type of evil um because it is um it is empire and it is questions of privilege and and things like that um i would say that only one of the bad guys is is cognizant of the fact that what she wants is power and she wants ultimate control and stuff like that um another one of the the bad guys is um is literally he's just the commander of the army and he he's he's basically he is a completely decent guy he's a nice guy he cares about his soldiers he um he's fiercely loyal to the empire he is you know he genuinely believes that bringing everybody under the song is for their own good so does that make him evil Um, Which is something that, you know, I always like writing these types of characters. I always try and write a bad guy that you can't help but like. And secretly hope that he might redeem himself or he might become redeemed. Um, In my first trilogy, the bad guys were pretty bad. They were, you know, they were kind of annoyingly charismatic at times and you couldn't quite help but like them a little bit, but they were very bad. Um, and they came to suitably sticky ends. But with this new trilogy, I wanted to blur that a lot further. And and so, I mean, even I am not sure how many bad guys are going to live to the end of the trilogy. Um, Maybe all of them. I don't know. I mean, and are they going to go on redemption arcs? Again, at the moment, I don't quite know. I've got some vague ideas. um, But I think you have to make them as real and as complex and as three-dimensional as you make your heroes Um, because otherwise i i want to make it as difficult as possible for the reader to know who they're supposed to be rooting for and and so that's basically that's how i approach writing my villains is that they need to be in their own way, in their own world, in their own society, they need to be as good and kind and generous um, to their own people as as the heroes are good and kind and generous to their own people, um, so that the reader is like, God damn it, I really like this guy, and I don't think I'm supposed to. Um, <laughs> but I think for me, that's what makes that that's what makes villains a lot more um a lot more relatable and people that you might you that you could imagine actually meeting on the street if you if you were having a really bad day um (laughs) (laughs) you know not not someone not a you know not a a a giant flaming eyeball in the sky or uh, or or voldemort i
1: i think for me like the two key things are a that whatever they want makes sense to them yeah even if it's absurd like this whole conversation been flashed into that one panel from an issue of Spider Man where he's yelling at this villain whose who's name is also Sauron. He's like, "You, you know, with all your scientific knowledge, you could have cured cancer by instead of making people into dinosaurs." And Sauron responds, "I don't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into dinosaurs." <laughs> Curing
3: cancer sounds
1: super boring.
3: I mean, dinosaur? how about I make you? I can kind of appreciate
2: this in some yes. ways.
3: <laughs> creative thinker Sauron. yeah yeah so dude is it, literally a pterodactyl yeah. so
1: yeah <laughs> and then the other thing is i think like an actor is can you make your villain fun to play like can mm-hmm. you make it be that that's your reader is going to look at that and be like man i want to see that guy in a movie or, you know <laughs> just because it's going to be a fun juicy role and those are yeah. those are the two things that are always in my head when i when i think about how to write villains.
3: I am such a sucker for the affably evil trope, the charismatic Mm. villain. I mean, give me Richard III walking out there and telling you with a smile, hey, I'm gonna murder a bunch of people and you're gonna sit here and watch me do it. It's gonna be great. Yeah, Like a character, especially when an actor can embody that well, but in, in writing, if you can write that kind of magnetism and charisma, then it does bring whatever evil things they're doing you you get this visceral enjoyment out of it, yeah. even if you don't agree with what they're doing at all. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
1: Die Hard does not work without Alan Rickman playing Hans Gruber. Like
2: Yes. You
1: know, <laughs> it it requires that, you know, that level of like, you know, yeah, he's just there to rob people and doesn't care who gets killed in the process. Yes. But but it's Alan Rickman. <laughs> yeah. I always
2: <almost, laughs> like want to know too how how does this particular villainy fit into this world like how is this world able to produce this particular villainy unless it's that someone is just so psychopathic or sociopathic that it's just this twisted and you can do that well certainly um i Mm -hmm. you know there are certainly examples of just taking someone who you know like marshall said it made sense to them and you believe it but if they aren't (laughs) that particular brand of villain, you know, how did, how did society allow this to come out or emerge and what in a society, even if, if the society itself is not an antagonist, like channels, those particular predilections or goals that are problematic. You know, if someone wants to accumulate power why is it that they're able to say slide into a underground crime kind of lifestyle and that has to have a a framework a scaffolding of world building around Mm -hmm. it that still allows that particular you know villainy to to happen pressure point yeah yeah it's
3: like what's the pressure point that makes them crack and I think like the Batman villains are almost a good example of this because even though Gotham is clearly a broken world and a broken system, the narrative rarely treats that system as the thing to defeat. Yeah. <laughs> because Bruce Wayne has lots of money and probably could if he wanted to. Anyway, but no, the villains are all fascinating because they, they each come from a specific pressure point, either something that happened in their past or um, a particular thing they care about some relationship gone wrong or some Mm. response they're having to the outside world you know poison ivy is an environmentalist that's where that comes from she's just a terrorist about it um finding those things finding finding even in a functioning society which i would not call gotham but if you're building a essentially functioning society there are still going to be those cracks and fissures where the magma bubbles up eventually
0: yeah, definitely. And I think, um, I think that kind of harks back to that, that idea of, of, of universal truths. It's like we can see how it happens in our world. It is very, very easy to imagine how it would happen in, uh, in a secondary world, in a, in a created world. Um, unless you are writing a book that is quite literally a utopia... Um, and if you were, I would argue, what the hell would you write about? Because, <laughs> because you know, I mean, one of the most fundamental seeds of story is conflict, whether that's an internal conflict and external conflict. Um, it's about challenge and change and transformation. Um, and if you were writing a utopia, none of that would exist, really. Um, so. I think whatever type of society you write and and even if, um, as Rowena said, even if the system itself isn't the antagonist, there are always going to be people who fall through the cracks. Um, You know, somebody somebody poured their life savings into a farm and, and there was a drought. You know, it's as simple as that. All of a sudden, you've got people who are living on the edge and they have then got to start making decisions about what do we do to stay alive. That doesn't automatically code them as a villain, but it does make them a very desperate character who could do very bad things. But potentially they could still come out of the narrative as a hero. You know, they could come out as a Robin Hood type character, you know. Mm -hmm. I had nothing, um, so I stole it and then I shared it out with my mates. (laughs) You know? (laughs) But but, everybody likes that guy. Yeah, I mean, uh, as (laughs) as far as the sheriff of Nottingham was concerned, he was, you know, Robin Hood was completely a villain. But to the poor people, he was a hero. And you know, those questions I always find really interesting. Um, But but yeah, you know, there's life and society are so precarious, and unless you're writing a culture in which, you know, someone's crop fails and they are immediately you know going to starve to death and all of their friends and neighbors rally around and take them in and support them through it then you're always going to have people who are forced into making bad decisions and and potentially forced into crime and you know and things like that in order to uh just in order to survive
2: and sometimes people being people Just make bad decisions, even when they aren't in a precarious, precarious position. And I always kind of like seeing, you know, well, what, you know, what series of events leads to the bad decision? Why, you know, why that bad decision? You don't have to have a full, obviously kind of villain origin story to make that happen. But just how is how is that decision available to your to your antagonist in one way or another? Or, you know, is it just the one decision or do you have to pile a decision on top of a decision on top of a decision until you've hit some kind of a point of either no return or a point of very difficult return? You can't just turn around and walk away.
0: Yeah, I think... um... I think a lot of it is, is sort of multiple repetitions of something that eventually wears down a character. I mean, one of the, you know, something that you see fairly often in, um, in fantasy that has a strong military or war theme is, um, is the soldier who's basically just dead behind the eyes, you know, is, is the soldier who, you know, at the end of their first battle, they, um, they sat on the ground and cried but you know that was 10 years ago and they've killed 100 people since then and now they're just like oh his boots look like they'll fit I'll have them you know and there's there is no um, there is no emotional fallout for them for the fact that they have killed another six people today you know and and again the question there is does that make them a villain or a hero. I mean, you could look at um, Joe Abercrombie's first Law trilogy, you know? Those guys are all hardened warriors. Uh, Logan Ninefingers is a stone cold fucking psychopath. Um, but he's absolutely the hero of that trilogy. And I love him to bits and I think he's great, you know? But but he is, he's batshit. But, but I would argue that he is, I mean, Obviously, that's a, that that's Grimdark and, and everyone is fairly morally ambiguous and, and, and morally gray. Um, but but him and his little band of killers are definitely coded as the heroes of the trilogy. It's just that, you know, they they slaughter their way to becoming heroes, effectively.
1: I always think when, when you sort of present that origin story of your villain, it, it's a tough tightrope between explaining them and justifying them and yeah. sometimes some some villains don't need to be justified we don't we don't need to see their their sad woobie of a story where they you know to show that that really they they've been wronged so badly and if only if only somebody had hugged them once that one time <laughs> everything would be different like that that can be a real dangerous place to to go into it is also fun just to show empathy without sympathy, or is it the other way around? I'm, I'm probably. Missing
3: them I think of um, it. I think of it as reasons versus excuses. They might reasons have reasons excuses. for being the way they are. That does not mean they have an excuse. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, it kind of reminds me a little bit like. Um, People who play D&D and, you know, they play a rogue and they're like, oh, well, you know, I mean, lost my parents when I was seven. I've been living on the streets and, you know, I was raised by rats and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And you're like, that's just an excuse for stabbing people and nicking their gold. Okay, that's that. You know, being raised by rats does not compel you to stab people and nick their gold. Okay? So like yeah. exactly as you said, that's an excuse, not a reason.
2: Yeah, you could have asked the rats to teach you some kind of trade. I mean Precisely. They're they're rats, they're very clever. They're resourceful.
0: Yeah. yeah, they've got tiny little hands, you know. Right. My God, you could probably teach the rats to knit or something. Okay, we are way getting off track here.
2: No, I think it's perfect and now I want to read the short story of the poor orphan the who teaches rats. a troop of rats to knit and <laughs> has some sort of knitwear empire or something and then they s-
1: Yeah, they start <laughs> a whole sweater business. <laughs> and... that,
0: that's my ne- that's my next Patreon original <laughs> fiction. We go. is, is we're going to have the knitting rats. <laughs> Excellent.
1: So in giving reasons versus excuses or such, is there is there something can you go too far with your villains? Is there or or with anti-heroes who are who are like, you know, Logan nine figures who are psychopaths, who are supposed to accept as the hero. Well,
2: I think part of it is genre, isn't it? And subgenre, that there is a particular reader who probably is not going to read that character positively, no matter what a good writer does to make them that way. So I think part of it is a knowing your audience, what, what ride are they paying for and are you giving it to them? Um, So there's probably a bit of that (laughs) at play. Um, at the same time, I think that just sort of being aware of, there are some lines people have a very hard time crossing, um, yeah. so if you're going to have your person, like, eat kittens for fun, this it might it might, it might get difficult to continue to make them sympathetic. I don't know. <laughs> I Maybe mean, that's just my yeah. personal line of not crossing, yeah. is eating kittens, but...
0: I mean, I think that's a fairly reasonable line to not cross, is eating kittens. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Um,
1: <laughs> Although, but I, now you just made me think of, uh, what's the movie? Um, with Chris Evans on the train. Um, Snowpiercer? Snowpiercer, where, you know, Chris Evans is the hero. You unquestionably believe Chris Evans is the hero of that story. And about two thirds in spoilers, he gives a monologue about eating babies because like, that's, <laughs> that's like what they were reduced to in the back yes. of the train. Well, and... they're
2: not kittens. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that's fine.
1: <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> but like there, there is a question of like, Oh, he is, he gives this monologue basically about the, how desperate the situation has made them yeah. that, that he's, you know, that he knows what babies taste like, and
2: I think that the question is if he like continues these gastronomic pursuits when it's not absolutely necessary.
0: <laughs> At that, that point, that tips him over. That tips that you makes over. Him a okay.
3: Do you eat babies for survival or for fun? <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> There's the tagline for this episode. <laughs> mm. Mm.
2: <laughs> this yes this, this is a this is a morally ambiguous character an anti-hero versus a psychopath is do you eat babies for survival or fun
0: yeah yeah but i mean it's also it's actually... it, it kind of reminds me of um alien 3 uh, the film alien 3 which was ripley who obviously everybody loves um and then a bunch of mass murderers and rapists and child abusers because it was on um, a prison planet or a prison ship. Um, And I was just like, well, obviously I want Ripley to survive. Everyone else can very happily get torn to shreds by the aliens. Thank (laughs) you very much. You know, I am not going to feel good about a single one of these dicks. Um, Because they were just, they were absolutely horrific. And and I was kind of like... I mean it was the third film so obviously they needed to try something different <laughs> but I I just I It's my least favourite of the Alien franchise, that's for sure. Uh, Well, uh, except possibly like Alien vs. Predator and stuff like that, which just can get in the sea, basically. (laughs) But then, yeah, there's another book that I read years and years ago, which I'm not going to name, but it had a rapist as the main protagonist. And he was actually supposed to be... It was a grimdark book, but he was actually supposed to be the hero. I'm like, yeah, okay. I mean... It was it was fade to black, but it was still implied that that he you know, he, he dragged off the ladies and, and raped them and, and I was like, Well I want him to be stabbed in the eye several times. <laughs> I'm happy to do it myself, you know? But but he yeah, he was he was supposed to be the 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 anti hero, I mean very anti hero, but but he was definitely coded as the best guy in the book and for me that was definitely that was a hard line no that's you know that is that is a bridge too far kind of thing yeah if that's the best guy in the book just
3: and yet
1: you probably got more angry emails yeah the person who wrote that yeah
3: (laughs) start that society right over yeah yeah,
0: precisely hit the doomsday button press
2: the reboot button (laughs) a reset well i think i think we are coming up on end of our hour together and it has been an absolutely fantastic hour with Anna and as is our tradition we would like to invite you to give us a little bit of trivia that we can throw into our our crazy little world that we've been building live on on air on this podcast
0: okay I am It is sort of slightly in the vein of uh, the Stone, Knife and Songs of the Drowned, but it isn't quite as evil. So I am going to give you a mischievous water spirit um, that may, when you, for instance, when you go to the well to collect your water, um, it may refuse to give the bucket back, or it may send the bucket back up full of ink, um or it may send the bucket back up full of angry squid um it's it's really it's it's very mischievous it doesn't really set out to harm anybody um although sometimes its pranks can go a little bit too far so there you go I love it.
3: Chaotic neutral water spirit. I love it. I like it. <laughs> I especially yes. love the implication that it can get giant squid into a well, which implies that it like has a pocket dimension that it can ah, turn the yes, bucket it, into. Yes. It, I enjoy that. It has a
0: bucket of
3: folding. <laughs> <laughs> but it decides what comes out of it. Someday. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Maybe I it has a target. I like it. that a lot.
2: I, I love it. I love the little, the little mischievous water sprite. W- with I hope bucket. it causes thank happy you.
0: havoc for you.
2: Yes, thank you. <laughs> well, it's been lovely having you. And again, when does Stone
0: Knife come out? Uh, 26th of November. Um, it will be Woo. ebook, audiobook, um, and it will be hardback in the UK. Um, I believe it's only going to be ebook and audiobook this year in the US. Uh, but you will get a paperback copy next summer. Or obviously you can order a hardback from uh, UK retailers. Excellent.
2: Well, Lovely. Thank you so much for joining us and feel free to come thank back any time with, with more.
0: I will, I will. With thank
2: new, you atrocities.
3: So so <laughs> new
0: atrocities. Thank you so much. New
2: atrocities.
0: I need to think up some new atrocities now. <laughs> thank you so much um for having me on the show and uh having such an interesting discussion actually i'm i'm so glad i got to speak to you all um and yeah it's been great fun
1: Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on December 9th, where we'll be doing our third potpourri special and answering a new batch of listener questions. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, especially with the next episode coming up, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as @worldbuildcast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the world with your making and help us all build until it hurts.